thanks for checking out this episode of the Jambase podcast. Jambase is a partner of Osiris Media, the podcast network for music. I'm Andy Kahn, and on this episode, we'll hear my interview with Ken Bats, who's best known as being a member of the 1960s countercultural icons, the Merry Pranksters. Ken talked to me about his fantastic new book, Cronies, a Burlesque, Adventures with Ken Kesey, Neil Cassidy, the Merry Pranksters, and the Grateful Dead. We'll get to my interview with Ken in a moment, but first, let's hear about this episode's sponsor. This episode is sponsored by SiriusXM. Watch a replay of Fish live from the Ninth Cube special New Year's Eve concert presented by SiriusXM's Fish Radio. SiriusXM subscribers can relive the one-of-a-kind live stream or experience it for the first time exclusively on the SiriusXM app, available now through March 1st. No car required. After you finish listening to this jam-based podcast episode, you can tune in to SiriusXM Fish Radio to hear musical highlights with behind-the-scenes commentary about the historic performance. Fish Radio is available to SiriusXM subscribers on their phone and connected devices at home, including Fire TV, Apple TV, Amazon Alexa, Google Home, Android TVs, and much more with the SiriusXM app. The unprecedented viewing event took place in the wake of the postponement of Fish's traditional New Year's Eve run at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Instead, the band performed on December 31st without an audience, but with full arena production. SiriusXM generously underwrote production costs to make the Fish Live from the Ninth Cube livestream free and to contribute to Fish's mission of bringing their community together to support those in need. The three-set Fish Live from the Ninth Cube livestream marked the first time Fish had included a dialogue with their fans during a show through social media comments and requests, which were viewable by the band while they performed. The show is part of Fish's Dinner in a Movie series, where the band provides a variety of recipes that fans make and then post photos of their results. New Year's Eve's lemon-themed recipes included guitarist Trey Anastasio's instructions for making lemonade when you get handed lemons. The Dinner in a Movie series has raised money through the band's Water Wheel Foundation to help nonprofits around the country and beyond. The Water Wheel Foundation raised over $300,000 from fan donations for six nonprofits close to the Fish community on New Year's Eve, bringing the total monies raised during the pandemic to over $1.2 million. Additional donations can be made at any time at fish.com waterwheel. Jambase podcast listeners who sign up for a new SiriusXM subscription will get three months of the SiriusXM app, SiriusXM standalone streaming service, for free. Visit SiriusXM.com slash streamfish for offer details. Don't miss your chance to watch Fish live from the Ninth Cube special New Year's Eve concert presented by SiriusXM's Fish Radio, exclusively on the SiriusXM app, now through March 1st. No card required. So for me, getting to talk to one of the Merry Pranksters was a thrill of a lifetime. It was the type of thing where I was texting old friends from high school just to tell them about it. We were relishing the idea of what a 16-year-old me would have thought about getting to interview Babs some 25 years later. Ken Babs, who is well into his 80s, spoke to me over a video call from his home in Oregon. We talked about his book, which is a collection of 70 essays capturing his life experiences on the forefront of the 1960s countercultural movement and beyond. The book begins with Babs attending Stanford University, where he met Ken Kesey, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and himself, a prominent member of the Merry Pranksters. From there, it's one psychedelic adventure after another, including the Merry Pranksters' legendary trip, no pun intended, across the United States in 1964 on the iconic bus called Further. It was almost a surreal experience getting to talk to Ken Babs about that voyage on Further, which was notoriously driven by the Beat Generation muse Neil Cassidy. During that trip, Babs and the Pranksters met Beat Generation icons like Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, connected with fellow early LSD supporter Timothy Leary, and engaged in numerous adventures with Keezy and others. The Merry Pranksters were also integral parts of the acid test in California in the 1960s, when LSD was still legal. 
Babs told me about the first time he encountered the members of the Grateful Dead, who also became essential players at the acid test. Ken forged deep friendships with the dead and also told me about his relationships with Pigman, Jerry Garcia, and others. Among the many things Babs and I also talked about was the time the Merry Prankster showed up at Fish's concert in Darien Lake, New York in the summer of 1997. Much of what we talked about is covered much more exquisitely and extensively in Ken's book, Cronies, a Burlesque, Adventures with Ken Kesey, Neil Cassidy, the Merry Pranksters, and the Grateful Dead. It's out now, so you can find it in most places that sell books. At the end of our interview, I read Ken a quote from the book, which I want to read again now in full, because I think it captures the essence of not only Ken's book, but also that of the spirit of the Merry Pranksters. Quote, Kesey and I fell in the crack between the two generations, too young for one and too old for the other. But we were part of the long line of American spiritual rebels in the tradition of the transcendentalists, bohemians, and other artists of print, paint, dance, music, and theater. Those who keep the freedom spirit of America alive. Neil Cassidy was the connecting link between the beats and the psychedelic movement, with a foot in each, his mind and voice guiding the way. End quote. All right, with Cowboy Neil at the wheel, let's go even further and listen to my interview with author and Mary Prankster, Ken Babs. your new book, Cronies, a burlesque, adventures with Ken Kesey, Neil Cassidy, the Merry Pranksters, and the Grateful Dead. It's a, it's a fascinating book. I've been really enjoying reading it. It's, I, I, it kind of reads to me like uh, the Forrest Gump of the counterculture. You seem to have been everywhere and, and, and encountered so many interesting characters in your life. Um, I'm interested. Uh, the The title of the book it's it's cronies a burlesque, and then the the the, the different people that are named. But uh, I'm interested in both those words. Burlesque is an interesting title for a work of of, of print. Yes, it is. But it is an actual uh, literary uh, genre. It goes all the way back to the late 1700s when there was this book called A Knickerbocker's History of New York City was published. And it caused a sensation. It was a called a burlesque uh, because he'd say things in there like, why, why is the mayor meeting all the boats at the dock and taking the prettiest girls to work in <laughs> City Hall? Oh, and so it caused a big sensation until the author revealed who he really was. It was Washington Irving, the most popular writer in America at the Times. Sure. So when I saw that, I said, oh, a burlesque. Huh? So I looked it up and the definition is it's a historical occurrence enhanced with embellishments, inventions, and exaggerations. And all of that let me, that set me free. So you had, you had discovered that word prior to starting to write the book? Well, I was what I was thinking about writing and, and uh, kind of getting in the mood uh, when uh-huh. I was trying to figure out how I was going to do that. I ran into that. I don't know how I ran into it, but I was sure glad I did. You ran, and then you ran yeah. with it. <laughs> well, you and know, then- the way the book started was my wife was an English teacher uh, and she taught Kesey's books and I'd go out every year and talk to her class. 
about yeah. Kinsey and the stories and I'd make notes. And after she retired, I was going through those notes one day and I thought, Hey, this would make a book. So I started writing it and just doing it as uh, uh, individual stories, self-contained stories uh, all through the book. And when did you come up with the title using the word cronies for the title? Because that's an interesting word, too, that has a different connotation than maybe you would think in this context. I know cronies is usually thought of in context with uh, gangsters and uh, right. those kind of guys, cronies working together to do something. But yeah. it also means people that do stuff together, you know, that, uh -huh. uh, yeah, that are buddies and that. I thought it was good for it. I thought it was a good title because, you know, we were cronies. Yeah, it's fitting. Definitely. You, you find out through the stories. That's definitely uh, what you guys definitely were. Um, so you had these, the, the started accumulating the stories from attending the classes that your wife was teaching and, and you, you thought maybe you had a book, but did you, did you know that it was going to be made up of these sort of individual essays? Well, individual stories, uh, uh, what it is, is, uh, my real profession, uh, as a performer, as a storyteller. Okay. And so I, as a writer, I knew the requirements of a story, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and some kind of dramatic tension or some kind of action within the story. And so I saw right away that each one of these things was a story in itself. So I wrote it as a complete story. And I like it like that uh, because you can pick it up and put it down and, you know, read these stories as individual stories. And it's not like a regular book where, you know, you got to start at the beginning and then you make a, right. a dog. Yeah, I found myself jumping around and going back and forth and, and rereading parts and jumping ahead to see what was happening next. It, it does. It's interesting how it, it, it's laid out that way. And there, you came up with a round number 70. Was that intentional? Oh, no, not at all. That's just the way it worked out. That's just how it fell out. Okay. And so were, was there, were there more of these? Was there a big editing process? Oh, huge editing process. Yeah. When I was writing it all the time, my wife uh, was with me uh, editing and working on it. Sure. And then David Stanford, Kesey's editor when, uh, for his books, was also my editor on my early book, uh, uh, Who Shot the Water Buffalo. So he edited the whole thing. A real okay. thorough job, and then my agent at the time, uh, she did a super, <laughs> unbelievable job of editing. And uh -huh. then uh, when it uh, when uh, Tsunami Books here in Eugene decided to be a press, and this would be the first book off the press, well, there at his uh, uh, bookstore, he has an ace editor there, and Scott himself, the owner, and so they went through, and then that was kind of the final edit. Wow! So so a lot of people helped, kind of. Oh yeah, Put it, get it much. into shape. Yeah, really, really. So you had the the notes from the classes. Did you have other bits of research that you used to to recollect your memories for these stories? Oh yeah. In fact, the best thing is that uh, Kesey and I, uh, all for as long as we knew each other, forty three years, we were uh, taping and uh, filming everything mm -hmm. lots of okay. things but sure. on the bus trip to new york we taped and filmed the whole thing right and so with neil cassidy the driver talking all the time we had all his words on on tape uh, uh so i was able to whatever i had to him talking use his actual words i just uh, transcribed the tapes because there's no way in the world anybody could try to emulate neil cassidy and and be him and stalk and, uh, and tell stories like he does I had actually wondered about that because the way that you capture his unique voice 
on no. paper, it, it seemed like it had to have been from some sort of source material because I don't know anybody besides Neil that could come up with those, the, that you know, that type of uh, um, dialogue, right? For sure. Yeah, so, and then also the movies. We, uh, I'd look at the movies and be able to uh, use the scenes from different movies, you know, the, what people were wearing and what they were doing and everything. So okay. I had a pretty good uh, bunch of uh, stuff I could uh, uh, deal with. It was all real. I didn't have to make it up. Right. There's a weak spot. Now, that weak spot is always attacked by the highest that are next door forces, like second dimensional, third dimensional, fourth dimensional. Worlds separate, but worlds that still touch. And then what about any of the people that are characters in the book that are that are still around? Did you reach out to any of them for their recollections? Oh, no. Heck no. Okay, no. This is all, <laughs> no, this is all from your they, mind. They can write their own book. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. So the the did you at the time, besides any of the the videos and the audio that you were taking, did you t keep any sort of a journal or have a diary from those times? I mean, obviously the actual video and stuff is going to, to be a as good as it gets, but were you keeping sort of any notes of your, of your life during the, the, these adventures? Well, I have lots of journals, but I never looked into them except for one terrific journal I have, which is the uh, journey to Woodstock and, and back. Oh. Okay. Which is a big, thick book. And so I use that a lot with the Woodstock chapter and the chapter about the Texas Pop Festival. Okay, right. So, so you did have some stuff that, you that, were, that was contemporaneous to the time that it took place. Yeah, that was the one. Gotcha. Um, so the book starts in 1958, around there, when you, when you met Ken Kesey at Stanford. But I'm curious, how did you get to Stanford? Because you, you were born in Ohio, right? Yes, and I went uh, to Miami University in Ohio uh, to college, and I got into writing there. Well, my mother was a librarian, and my dad was a small-town uh, newspaper editor. Oh, okay. So I had a lot of that uh, stuff in my blood. Sure. And I liked to write and read. And, and so at Stanford, at Miami, I had a real good writing uh, teacher, uh, Walter Havinghurst, who was a real good author, wrote a lot of Ohio uh, books, uh, history, okay. and novels. And he encouraged me to uh, go into writing. So uh, when I, uh, I had one more year on my Naval ROTC scholarship, which I was using it to go to school. So I decided to go to graduate school in writing. And the three schools uh, in the country then were Columbia, Iowa, and Stanford. And I thought, well, New York City, that's not too far from Ohio. I could probably go there anytime. And Iowa, who wants to go to Iowa? I've, I've already been to Ohio. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, I'm a Hawkeye, Ken. Well, I, 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 I'm one of, I, I'm somebody that wants to go to Iowa. So well, that's okay. I, mean, I have nothing against Iowa, but you know what I, I mean. I know. No, I know. I, hey, look, if I had the choice, if I could have gone to Stanford, I would have. <laughs> well, that's what they decide. I'm going out to the West Coast. There you I'm go. Like man, and I'm sure glad I did. <laughs> And so you got into a writing program at Stanford, right? Uh, yeah, I uh, went there and uh, I was already admitted to the college. But to get into the class, unless you had a scholarship to the class, you had to submit writing. Uh, 
things you had written uh, to the office uh, and they'd go over it and then they would let you know if you were uh, in or not. And so I got in that way. And, and so, and so it, what, what did you submit at the time? What? Do you remember what you submitted? <laughs> Some stories I had written, but I don't yeah. have any idea yeah. what they are. They, they, they aren't ones that would have made it into the book, I imagine. <laughs> oh, no, no. I don't know what that stuff is. Uh, so Ken Kesey was in the writing program. Were, were there anybody else of note that was there? Well, Wendell Berry, which is probably okay. quite, quite a guy. And then Ernest Gaines, who was a tremendous writer from the South. Uh, he wrote the diary of Miss Pittman. Something, Miss Pittman. Oh, sure, sure, Maybe sure. The movie. Yeah, and then there were a few others. Uh, everybody in the class uh, published. Uh, and finally, when I published my uh, Vietnam novel in 2011, Wendell told me, he says, you're the last person in the class to finally <laughs> publish a book. So, so you did keep in touch with some of them? Oh, Wendell, yeah. He and I yeah. are real good pals. We talk on the phone and write back and forth all the time. That's very cool. Um, so did you and Kesey hit it off instantly? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The first time we met, we uh, got right into it, yakking with one another and talking and, and hanging out. And and then uh, as the class went on, he and he lived in this little enclave called Perry Lane, which were a bunch mm -hmm. of cottages all connected by paths with the wooded area across the street from the Stanford golf course. And so I'd go over there for lunch all the time. And uh, he and his wife and, and little bit babies. And, and on weekends, we'd go there and hang out and, uh, you know, uh, drink beer and wine and play the bongos and the banjos and all that. And people gravitated uh, toward him and toward the scene. Sure. Uh, he was the natural kind of uh, guy that, that could attract people because he owns his charisma. And were you two writing together at that time? We never wrote together. No, no. We just write our separate things. Yeah. yeah no, yeah. we never did anything together until the 90s when we did the book Last Go Round when we wrote right. that. And, oh, actually, but, we did other stuff together. I can't remember what it was. Small and you, you were starting to make music then, too, though, right? Uh, 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 well, you yeah, Keezy, Keezy could play chords and sing uh, folk songs on guitar, and I was a trombonist. <laughs> 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 uh, so, yeah, and I'd, I'd just uh, be goofing around all the time. But I didn't really get into music making until much later with groups and all that. And then... Yeah. So, did you finish the writing program at Stanford? Well, there's no finishing. I mean, you, no. you just go there. You don't get a degree in writing. I mean, you could get a master's. I tried to get a master's, but I flunked the French test. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be able to pass a, uh, a foreign language test. And not only that, but like I said, I was a Naval ROTC, uh, and I had chosen the Marine Corps as a part of that to go into the Marine Corps. And in uh, May of that year, when the year was over, I had to go into the Marine Corps. I got my commission as a second lieutenant, and I was off to Quantico, Virginia. Well, Kesey stayed there the next another year and got a scholarship to the class, and that's when he was writing a uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's, Cuckoo's Nest. And is that also then when he started doing the experiments with, with LSD? Yes, that is. Uh, there was one of the guys there at uh, in the Perry Lane, Vic Lovell, who had gotten into the program, and he told Kesey about it, and Kesey did it. And uh, this is how LSD came into our scene was uh, Kesey did the experiments with him, and then uh, it was in the VA hospital uh, in Menlo Park. Uh -huh. And uh, right afterwards, he got a job as an aide in the hospital. 
Uh-huh. And one night he was in the upstairs in the room looking down on the, at the patients. And uh, right next to door, a door there was the office of the guy that ran the experiments. So he went in there and opened the drawer in the desk and found a bottle of Sandoz uh, LSD, pure stuff, the real thing. So he took that <laughs> home. And then on Saturday nights when people would gather, they'd take LSD. <laughs> but you weren't there for that. You were in Vietnam. I wasn't in Vietnam yet, but I was no. in Southern California where we, uh, where our squadron was. I hadn't gone to Vietnam yet, okay. but I would uh, fly up to uh, uh, the Bay Area on a helicopter from our base in Southern California, uh, uh, what do they call it, a cross-country uh, trip, mm-hmm. and spend the weekend up there. So uh, I got I got a hold, a hold of it there. So that was your first experience with LSD around? Yeah. It was oh, yeah. yeah. Then. So. Yeah, and then when we went to Vietnam and were there for 13 months, uh, no drugs at all, no pot. Oh, really? In fact, you know, it's funny. We never smoked pot either. There was never any pot around. LSD came first. It was legal. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. See, you didn't have to worry about it. But pot, you know, having you get caught with pot, (laughs) that's that's big time. And, And you flew helicopters when you were in the military, right? Yes, I did. I went from Quantico, a year in Quantico. I I went to flight school in uh, Pensacola and all through flight school for a year. And then I picked at the end, instead of jets or multi-engine, I picked helicopters. And my instructor, who was a jet pilot, he says, what the hell are you doing? Why do you want to fly helicopters? I told him, because they don't don't drop bombs. (laughs) That's a, that's a noble, noble uh, task there. Did, did oh, uh, yeah, they'd ask us questions at flight school, like uh, rhetorical questions, like you're uh, you're you're in your uh, fighter plane and you got bombs and and you're out over the ocean and the, and uh, you get a call the ship below you with that uh, Red Cross stripes is not that is it's an enemy ship that's trying to disguise themselves uh, so drop your bombs on it oh. and what would you do? And uh, I said, yeah, I'd drop my bombs. And then the instructor would kind of nod his head. But then I'd turn to the guy next to me and say, but I'd miss. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I like that. I know. That that was a good one. (laughs) And and, and so did you fly helicopters anymore after you got out of the military? No, I had enough of that. I mean, thousands of hours, you know, and I had no interest in it. I've never flown anything since. And driving further was probably just as wild of an experience. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> so, so let's talk about further the 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 famous bus that uh, took the Merry Pranksters on a cross country trip in 1964. So, what was the? And it, it it's a large part of the book. There's quite a few stories from this trip. Obviously, it was a it was a very important um, event in in your life and in the, in the lives of the Pranksters. Um, what was the, where did the idea come from to, to make that trip initially? Well, in 1964, Kesey's book, Sometimes a Great Notion, was coming out, being published, and they were having mm-hmm. a publication party in New York City in okay. the late summer. And also the World's Fair of 1964 was in uh, New York City that year. So Kesey and I and a couple of our pals decided to go. We were to take my station wagon. But then more <laughs> and more people wanted to go. So Kesey bought this bus for sale in San Francisco. It was a converted school bus uh, by a Catholic family into a motor home. And he brought it down to his place. He was living in La Honda then up on the ridge between Palo Alto and the ocean. 
and uh, then it got transferred into the uh, into further uh, painting it and adding all the stuff on. And by then we had gotten tired of writing because of the amount of typing it took to uh, uh-huh. redo a page and to rewrite something. You know, and we were kind of burned out on it. And so even in Stanford, I had a reel-to-reel tape recorder. Even then, Kesey and I would stay up at night and just rap stories and made up stuff and songs and everything into the tape recorder. So we kept doing that every time we'd get together. We'd lie on the floor all night long with other people and do whole a whole novel. And <laughs> yeah. the, only, the only kind of drag about it was... Well, because we thought we were thinking of ourselves as professionals, you know, and that this might be mm-hmm. a medium where we could uh, would go out in the world and we could make some money on it. And so in order to assess the uh, the possibility of that, you always had to listen to the damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, while we were doing that at La Honda, George Walker, one of our pals, showed up with a 16 millimeter camera. Oh, we were up off the floor and starting cavorting in front of the camera, you know, with made up plots and swords and costumes and stuff. So on the bus trip, we decided we would film and tape the whole thing and make a movie that would be shown on the big screen TV because it'd be something nobody had ever seen before <laughs> and have all that. So uh, he bought, Kesey bought a big professional Airflex 16 millimeter camera and a tape recorder to, to get tape on, which is, uh, t- <laughs> of all things, a reel-to-reel Sony tape recorder that ran on household current. I said, what the hell are you going to do? Are you going to run an extension cord out the back of the bus <laughs> all the way to New York City? Run it? No, no, I got a generator, and he put it on the back of the bus to get supply 110 volts. But the generator would go, da 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 It would run at various <laughs> speeds. They didn't pay much attention to it until we were editing the movie and found the sound would go from real, raw, raw, raw to, hey, I'm doing Oh, my God. So it really screwed up our editing process. Cassidy <laughs> talks fast enough, right? <laughs> yeah, in fact, he, that's how we knew it. it was, he was talking faster than ever and then finally <laughs> slower than ever. And and at what point were you guys ca- starting to call yourselves the the Merry Pranksters? This happened just before the bus trip. Uh, everybody was at La Honda, and it was one evening. And Chuck, Ken Kesey's brother Chuck, uh, he got Kesey. And he says, "Let's ride out to the ocean. I want to show you something." And we rode out there, and uh, we stopped on the, uh, the the hill open overlooking the ocean, and we got out and we crossed the stream, and he led us into this tunnel. And we crawled through the black tunnel for, I don't know, a long time and came out in this cave looking out into the ocean. And it was a spotter's cave for from World War II where uh, they'd be up there with binoculars looking for the Japanese submarines to come and shell the avocado fields. <laughs> no, it, wasn't that. it was artichoke fields right there. <laughs> so as a matter of fact, the Japanese guy that uh, he didn't read the code right. He was bad with A-words and he didn't shell the that artichoke fields where we were, he went down and, and shelled the avocado orchards in Santa Cruz. <laughs> but anyway, while we were up there yakking, we looked out there and here was coming this wave, this huge wave. And we went, oh, my God. What we didn't know was there was a tsunami hit in Alaska and it is coming all the way down the West Coast. And we figured we got to get out of here. And so we were went through that cave and lickety split in our hands and knees and came out the other side. and. 
that little creek was now a raging torrent from all the water coming in from the uh, wave and backing up the creek. And uh, George says, what are you going to do? And I says, uh, never fear. The intrepid traveler was, is here. And I stepped into the water and off I went. But Kesey grabbed me by my shirt collar and hauled <laughs> me back in. He said, let's just wait a few minutes. And sure enough, the creek went down and we walked back across. And we drove back to La Honda and we got out of the car and Mike Hagan yelled, halt, who goes there? And I said, tis I. The intrepid traveler come to lead my merry band of pranksters across the country and back in the reverse direction of the settlers. Our motto, the obliteration of the entire nation. Oh, no, no, wait a minute. We're not going to bomb them. We're going to blow their minds. And so that was the first utterance of the word merry pranksters. And we became the merry pranksters. Man, Ken, you just gave me goosebumps. Uh, that's really cool to hear you t tell me that story. Um, you also then all kind of took on nicknames. Where did that come from? Well, we were uh, making a movie, and so we all had our movie names. Your characters, we okay. movie, like I was an intrepid traveler, and mm -hmm. uh, Neil was, no, Keezy was swashbuckler, and Ron DeVert was a hassler. You know, everybody had a name. Yeah. And the other thing is we had bought these striped shirts, so everybody had his own right. striped shirt. And we'd wear those all the time because... In movie making, if you were in the same clothes, you can take scenes from back then to now and, and you know, intermix them. And they, right. you know, it seems like it's all the same time. You can blend the so continuity. The movie trick making trick we learned somewhere. Uh, so, uh, so that's the reason for the nicknames. So, and we've, we've mentioned Neil Cassidy now a couple times, Cowboy Neil at the wheel. What was your first impression of meeting him? He seems like just a one of a kind type of of personality and character. Well, I didn't meet him until uh, there at La Honda uh, on the day that the bus was getting ready to go, and Kesey got uh, Ron Revert to go look f uh, down to Palo Alto and find uh, Cassidy who hung around down there, and he found him in Kepler's bookstore and came up there, and Kesey talked him into driving the bus mm -hmm. uh, to New York and back. Uh, and and <laughs> Neil really liked the idea of being in a movie. He said, oh, yeah. yeah, he kind of puffed up. He says, you mean I'm going to be a movie star in my declining years? <laughs> There's nothing I would rather do for you. <laughs> so that's, uh, I, I didn't really meet him then. I was just one of the people standing around watching him and listening to him. But when we got on the road, uh, uh, he was, you know, race cars and race car driving was one of the things he always talked about. He used mm -hmm. it as a metaphor for life, all the things that you learn on racing a car. And so he was telling everybody was all the pranksters were huddled around him up there around the uh, driver's seat. And uh, he was telling them about the four wheel drift that the race car use, guy uses to go around the corner where you're braking and gassing at the same time. And so he started to demonstrate it with the bus. And back, and back where I was once, suddenly we were flung back and forth across the bus. And I yelled, oh, Neo, knock it off, knock it off. I says, that race car shit's okay in a car, but uh, in a bus, he said, I said, the, the, the mark of a really true great driver is when you're in that bus, it's like you're in your living room. You don't even know you're on the road. You can walk around, do whatever you want, sing, dance and everything oh god he was so mad ah babs that goddamn babs what do you think he knows this because he played basketball one time he thinks he was <laughs> <damn bad. laughs> 
<laughs> so, but we got to be real good friends as time went on. Uh, did a lot of things together. Yeah, do, I, you developed a, a pretty close relationship, right? Yes, very. Um, and and he only drove there, right? What? He he only ended up driving there to New York. Yes, he had to get back. He had to paint uh -huh. the house, and he had a job at uh, the tire recapping place that uh, he could only be gone so long. And his buddy, uh, uh, I can't remember his name, was there meeting him with a car. So he took off back to California. But then that meant that the rest of the pranksters had to drive further back. Yeah, George Walker was a real good driver. He drove most of the time. He was the main one. Now, yeah. before you guys headed back, though, you had a pretty important meeting with um, Jack Kerouac. Um, yeah, that was very nice. Uh, when we got there to New York, uh, a friend of ours had an apartment was empty. Uh, it was her cousin's apartment, and the cousin was in England. So mm -hmm. we all got to stay there. A really nice place, the big sure. living room for all of us. And uh, while we were there, Ginsburg showed up. And he got Cassidy, and they went out to Kerouac's and talked Kerouac into coming over to meet Ken Kesey. You know, that, that was right. the uh, draw. And so he came over, and he was tired and kind of hung over, and he sat there on the couch while we all got into our crazy outfits and our instruments out and started cavorting and playing and fluting and filming and taping and doing our thing. And he just watched it all for a long time, and then uh, finally uh, he went home. He had seen all that before. I found out later that uh, from uh, David Amran, who is one of the original Beats, still alive, the only one still alive, 90 years old, Mm -hmm. a musician and composer that that's the same stuff we were doing making up stories and acting out the stuff and all that they were doing the same thing getting high on, on, on pot and doing the same thing even made a movie called pull my daisy which you can oh, wow. still see on uh, youtube uh, where all the beats are uh, acting out parts and everything and uh they lost the soundtrack, so uh, uh -huh. Kerouac did a narration for the whole movie, and David Amaran wrote wrote the music. It's really a, a neat little movie, and you get to see all the beat characters in it. I've not heard of that. I'm definitely going to check yeah, that pull out. Pull my daisy. Pull my daisy. So was that the only time that you interacted or were in the presence of Kerouac? Yes, it was, yes. Oh, yeah, we were very honored uh, to be able to see him and everything, and and uh, have him, have him, have met him and all that because you know he's a big hero to us with uh, on the road. Yeah, I mean it, he's a hero to me because of on the road. I mean it, it's it's a, it's amazing how many generations he has affected with his work. Did That's you terrible. have any? No doubt, no doubt. Um, did you have any personal interaction with him that night? Do you remember anything about him? Well, I think I handed handed him a beer. <laughs> That's cool. Hey, that, that's a badge of honor. There you go. Uh, I might have. I don't, I don't know. I might have said something. I. I think I did in that story in the book. Well, another one of the the prominent beats uh, is, is Allen Ginsberg, who we've mentioned a couple of times, and and he shows up in the book quite a few times. What what was your relationship like with him, and 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 what was it like to to be around him? Because he seems also be, like you had to watch him all the time. One time he kissed me on my uh, on my lips. <laughs> yeah, I heard that. No, Alan was a good guy. He had a great sense of humor, and uh, he was he could be up for anything. Uh, plus, being a good poet. Yeah, we saw him on and off uh, until he died. Um, and, and you also, you know, you were making music with the pranksters. We've we've mentioned this a couple of times. 
what was that music like that you were making? C- cacophonic. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we every yeah the Mary Band and Franks was actually a band. We all played right. instruments, you know, trombone and clarinet, saxophone, uh, drums and flutes. Uh, well, we would just make up the music, uh, a form of uh, uh, non-intelligence uh, uh, communication. <laughs> <laughs> so all improvised, all spontaneous, just totally. We knew no songs, and and later on uh, we went all electric with uh, guitars and bass and electric piano and drums and and got real good at uh, improvising and playing and backing it up uh, <clears throat> yeah we 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 did that well forever and and another sort of interesting meeting that occurred on this trip was with Timothy Leary at Millbrook uh with with his sort of psychedelic um LSD enclave um it, it's your story kind of tells a different tale than what's out there uh, sort of in the, in the mythology of that meeting. Um, it sounds well, like it was. Right. And I was glad to do that because the myth of that meeting was that it was uh, not nice, that they didn't like us. Right. <clears throat> we were too crazy and awful and they were meditative and mellow, but that's not true at all. We did, we were a shock to them when we came in with the bus going and smoke bombs going off and the music blaring and casting yakking because they'd been <laughs> up all night on an LSD high and they were just kind of, you know, hanging out and everything. Ready but to come down. Yeah. They went on and everybody relaxed and they sent us down to the swimming pool and we all went down there and they got to, uh, uh, you know, rest up and everything. We came back for a real nice meal with all of them and got along real well. And we all went to bed that night and we had to leave the next morning and, uh, Ramdas, uh, who was kind of ran the show there, <clears throat> you know, the, the ordinary business of running the place. Mm-hmm. Said to Casey and me, he says, oh, come on back in the house here for back of the house for a minute. And we went back there and there was Leary who hadn't appeared all the time we were there. And he apologized, said he had a cold and plus a new girlfriend. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but he wanted to know us to know that uh, we, we shouldn't think that we were uh, at opposite uh uh, kind of extremes or ends of anything that we were actually in our own way doing the same thing, <clears throat> enlightenment, uh, you know, and uh, raising consciousness and all that, mm-hmm. and that we would be doing it together uh, as much as we can and would keep, you know, keep going. So then we shook hands and left, and <laughs> and we did meet up with with Leary many times uh, for the rest of his life and do a lot of stuff together. Yeah, so, he shows uh, up in the book know, a few times. All, the real story of that was a it was a terrific meeting. It was uh, it was it was necessary for the wild west coasters to meet the mellowed out uh, east coasters and agree that we were all doing the same thing. We're in this together. And like you said, you did end up then uh, encountering Timothy Leary a, a number of other times throughout the rest of his life. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, lots of times. And what was what was he like as a person in in sort of when he when you when he got out of that setting and and you know came out west or was at the hog farm or something like that was was he a a good guy to hang with oh you're not kidding man he had kids he had a family and wives and and he was he was an ordinary guy just like us you know and yeah. doing ordinary things we even took him to an oregon football game one time he really <laughs> afterwards we were in this house uh 
with his players, but I had a son on the team and uh, with him and we were in one of the players' houses and uh, Timothy was there on the couch with these football players sitting around and just shooting the shit with him. And in the kitchen, this dad of one of the players was giving him all kinds of hell because he was a defensive back and he'd let the guy get behind him and they scored a touchdown to win the game. He was screaming and yelling at the guy. And he, there was a break in the minute, and he, and, and he says, don't you have anything to say for yourself? Dad, he says, I got to get out of here. I got to go in the other room. Don't you know that's Timothy Leary out there talking to the guys? The guy says, who? <laughs> <laughs> well, the kid knew. The kid was smart. <laughs> uh, so, so speaking of sort of being uh, about – you know, spreading LSD and, and the psychedelic movement, you were also very integral in the acid test that, that started on the West coast. Um, they, they started out of sort of showing the movie that you made once you got back from New York. Is, is that accurate? Yes, it is. And uh, that thing you said about sharing the LSD, we never shared the LSD. There's another myth that goes around that the bus was uh, LSD, a machine that passed out LSD to everybody. We never, never have given LSD to anybody but ourselves. And even, okay, here's how the acid test came about. When we came back, we were going to edit the movie and we'd work on it during the week. And then on Saturday night, we'd show it there at La Honda. And mm-hmm. the word got out and people started pouring into his house on Saturday nights and making a huge mess and staying out all night. And so Keezy says, we got to get out of the house. So we rented a hall. And we did do it to uh, show our movies, but also we set up a, a band, uh, our band to play. And then on the, one of the very first parties we had, uh, the band, you know, the band that became the Grateful Dead showed up. And so then they showed up at all the acid tests and became <laughs> the house band. So they'd have their stage at one end, we'd have ours at the other end. Sometimes they'd play, sometimes we'd play, sometimes we'd play together. And meanwhile, the movies were going on the uh, wall. Uh, we were, broke them into three reels and showing three projectors. And Roy Seaburn, who was the uh, originator of the light show, would be there with his uh, projector doing the oils and all that stuff on right. the wall. Yeah, and then it, somebody, and we don't know who in the North even cared would bring in the garbage cans and one would say adults and the other say for kids only, uh, or, or I mean, adults only and the other for kids and, uh, people would get high. And, uh, the only thing we tried to do is keep everybody there all night. So by morning when they were coming down, they'd be out and no, so nobody'd be out real high on the streets. You know, and, and, right. and do you know how the dead ended up? the members of the Grateful Dead ended up that showing up that first time? Well, we had met them when, before they, you know, and they were just a jug band and playing in, mm-hmm. uh, uh, down in Palo Alto, Palo Alto. At the coffee house and that. But then I had a party at my house uh, in November uh, and uh, it was a Halloween party and we had all our stuff set up, our instruments and everything. And, we were getting high and we went outside to commune with the moon and we heard the music suddenly coming from the house and we went in and there all those guys were playing our instruments. So we let them play for a while and then we played for a while and then we just stayed there all night. And uh, then whenever we uh, did an acid test there, they'd be. (laughs) And 
And how, what would you describe as sort of the the purpose of the acid tests uh, beyond just like as far as it meant as far as the psychedelic experience goes? Well, the purpose was to get everybody out of the house and to have a place where we could do what we wanted to do. And so this is something we like to do. I mean, we were performers. We played and the band, of course, was tremendous. And and uh, it just became a thing that evolved on its own uh, and, and, you know, kept growing and getting better and better. You know, we did that one at the Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco, a big, huge mm-hmm. hall. And then at the uh, Trips Festival, that was another one. Engine room coming in loud and clear. The captain has just informed me that we're now on the verge of going into Operation Crystallization. Breezy, the chief engineer, has already left his station at the TV console to go down to the engine room to prepare the rocket fuel needed to enter this new configuration. The captain himself is going down. And there's the electrician. Cassidy, however, will remain at his post in the projection booth in order to keep driving this ship through whatever electrical and meteor shower we have to encounter. We'll keep all the stations alive on the line, and the old pointed head will continue to monitor from his post. (laughs) And then uh, uh, Kesey got busted for pot, and he was going to be sentenced to go to jail and uh, instead he faked his suicide and split from Mexico. And at the same time as when we were going to take the uh, acid test to LA, we were done doing it in San Francisco. So he told me, you keep it going, take it down there. And so I did, and we were doing it down there in uh, all these different places until the night that uh, LSD became illegal in California. And in the middle of the acid test, as it was approaching midnight, I got all the pranksters together and said, what do you say we get on the bus and drive down to Mexico and find Kesey? And, oh, yeah. So we did. So we went down there and we spent six months down in Mexico on, in Manzanillo, this little village. Uh, we were north of the village in two houses right on the beach. It was wonderful. And how? And then after that, though, you, you came back to the the bay area and well, yeah, and, yeah our visas expired you only get a six okay. visas so we had gotcha. to go back so Kesey said he was going back too and so <clears throat> we got back there to san francisco and uh he was mocking uh fbi saying they couldn't find their underwear or even hanging <laughs> on the clothesline they'll never find me it took television cameras right down on the main street of san francisco and uh, this was going on for a while. And then one day he's driving along the 101 going uh, south and he looks in the car next to him. It's the FBI agents and they see him. <laughs> so Casey pulled over to the side and jumped out of the car and jumped over this chain link fence and was running across this big schoolyard. And he's, he's running, he's thinking, this is the way my life's going to be from now on. I'm going to be running from these guys to hell with it. And he stopped <laughs> and they came and took him away. And, he ended up doing six months in uh, San Mateo honor camp uh, instead of jail, which wasn't too bad, uh, considering that the property uh, butted right up against his property in La Honda. <laughs> so he snuck off one day uh, when they were working up there and went up to the top of the hill where there was a spring to get a drink of water out of the spring with his little blue cup. 
and, and then snuck back. And he said, if he had got caught, he'd have had to do the rest of his time in the jail down in San Mateo. Wow. That's, that's wild. So is this around the time then that you start kind of becoming closer with the members of the Grateful Dead and, and being really sort of a part of their camp too? Well, we became friends with them as people, not right. just man. I mean, no, so no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. We we go over there. I mean, Jerry Garcia and I became really good friends. We really had a good time together. He was so sharp, so funny, and I could. We did a lot of stuff together. But all the guys, we knew them all and everything. So we didn't really uh, hang out with them or anything. Or <clears throat> I don't think we even when they played stuff, we never particularly went there. But you you did though take a trip to Woodstock and had a pretty important. Uh, placement on stage with them during their set there, right? Well, yeah, but that just happened because that just, we were that just happened. Woodstock at the same time. And then when they were playing, of course, I'd go over there and do it. And it was a really <laughs> tremendous scene because this storm came through as they were about to play and just wrecked the stage. I mean, it was flooded and nothing worked and everything. So, so it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and in the book, you said that it was Pigpen who urged you to go out and, and talk to the audience that's the massive I, audience. I know. That's because whenever I'd go to a Grateful Dead show in uh, San Francisco, uh, and they'd be, they always took forever to get going. I mean, Owsley would be <laughs> messing with the stuff forever, you know, as their sound man. They'd be getting impatient, standing around, and <clears throat> nothing was happening. And Pigpen, I'd be talking to him by order, and he said, Go out and tell him a story, Babs. So I'd go out there and get on the microphone and start yakking, and the guys would hear me talking or anything. They'd pick up their instruments, come right out there and start playing <laughs> on the goddamn stage. So the same thing happened there at Woodstock when nothing was happening or anything, but they got one microphone working, pig pens, to go out there and tell them a story. Wow, are we, we, once again, we're too slow. Our timing is off just a hair right here. And I'll tell you why. It's because... Uh, the only place we really feel comfortable is in home, you know, when we got our family around us. And our family's a big one, and we're feeling pretty comfortable up here, but, but we want to get the family so big that even in this scene, and it's happening, we're, uh, we feel comfortable even when we're like this, and the rain comes down and everybody's in terrible shape. Yeah. So that's what we're working at. If he's going to do it, we'll do it. That yeah, is, I know it. It's all happening, right. I've always wanted to ask someone this question, Ken. What was Pigpen like? Oh, Pigpen was a great guy. I mean, you know, he his dad was a R and B DJ in Oakland, so he grew up with all that music, and he knew mm -hmm. it so well. Uh, and yeah, he was so down to earth. He was so much fun. He was, he was just, everybody loved Pigpen. Uh, <clears throat> you know, he'd get along with everybody. Yeah. I always liked him a lot. He just had that, uh, alcoholic thing happen. You know, sure. Drank too much, <clears throat> but he, it's because he was really shy going on stage and performing. Right. Like um, you, you mentioned before that you did have a, a pretty strong relationship with, with Jerry Garcia. Um, what was he like as a, as a friend? I mean, I know I've, I've heard stories of, about him, you know, as a musician, as a bandmate, 
But what was he like as sort of just your friend? He was just so easy to be around and hang out with and do stuff with. You know, it's like having a you know like your old high school pal or something because <clears throat> we both. We both had the same interests and we had the same sense of humor and we were both smart guys. So we could always just have the best time wherever we were. You know, it, it was fun to be with just as an ordinary guy. That's that's really cool. Um, while I have you, I want to ask you if you have any recollection of the time that you you, you showed up on stage with Fish um, in, in 1997 uh, in Darien Lake uh, with, with Ken oh, Kesey. Yeah. yeah, we were on a tour going to Canada and someone we were going through there and someone told us to go to Darien Lake because fish was playing. <clears throat> so we drove in there in the bus in the parking lot and here came uh, the guys from fish over and got on the bus and started talking. Oh, really? To, yeah. And started talking to us and everything. And they said, come on uh, backstage and uh, even come on the stage and do something with us. Okay. So we parked the bus close to there and then we went into the dressing room and we were on there and we were doing a play then, a musical play called Twister. And we all had our Twister com costumes with us because we'd do, when we'd stop places, we'd do bits from the play. And so George Walker was the uh, Tin Man and Phil Dietz was the Scarecrow. And uh, I can't remember. It's all Wizard of Oz probably. characters, right? Huh? It was all Wizard of Oz characters. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Not, except for me, I was Frankenstein. <laughs> okay okay and so uh they're out there playing and one at a time uh all of us would go out there with our costumes and then for every person that came out there they they played a song that had to do with that character mm -hmm. and, and then finally i was the last one and they played uh whatever i can't remember the frankenstein song what it was but everybody knew it you yeah know, yeah in the song and so we all got out there and we were cavorting around on the stage and Kesey got on the microphone and he really was having a great time talking and they were playing behind him. And out of the audience came the bozos. These are these guys uh, from San Francisco that had these big heads that were huge heads uh, that with big eyes and red noses and white costumes jumping up and down and came up on the stage. And so we were all up there together. And everybody that's been to that thing said it was the wildest, craziest, uh, greatest show they'd ever seen. It, I mean, it sounds like it. The, just the, the tapes, the audio, the audio tapes alone seem yeah. like it was a crazy thing. I can't imagine what it was like to be there. Yeah, the audio uh, tape's real good. I still have people that email me or message me and say, I was there when I saw you and Fish. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure for a lot of people, it was the, you know, some of the first interaction with with the pranksters. And, and I was, a, you know, I was a teenager in high school at the time, falling in love with the beats, um, being, blow, you know, having my mind blown by on the road and everything right when you guys did that. So it was, and I was in love with Fish at the time too. So it was, it was really cool for me to, from afar to ha experience that at that time in my life. Oh, great. We need our third helper. Our third helper. Let's bring it on, ladies. Our cowardly lion.
I'll let you get going. I, I do just have a, a couple quick questions that I want to wrap up with, and it's it's more general. But like in the book, you you mentioned that you I want to get this right that you and Kesey fell through the crack between the two generations the 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 beat generation and and sort of the the hippie generation. Um, you've you've lived through all these turbulent times now. What's your take on the current culture? Well, the current culture is totally uh, crazy. Uh, like I tell people, who needs drugs? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's psychedelic as hell. It's what it is is uh, when they say let let your freak flag fly freely, yeah. you're getting freaks from all different walks sure. of life for freaking freely, and mm-hmm. so it's all happening at once. Uh, it's it's quite a scene, uh, but the way the media is works today, they focus on these uh, conflicts and these people are doing the wildest, awfulest things, and they don't know about the millions of us who are not getting involved in any of that and mm-hmm. then, uh, keeping things going and doing everything we can to uh, restore the earth and uh, you know implore uh, uh, people to. I mean that whole thing about the web space. Uh, telescope is really wonderful but it cost i can't remember how something like 29 billion dollars yeah, or something yeah. like that somebody you realize geez that would have fed a lot of people <laughs> no doubt <laughs> i mean it's wonderful in some way so i don't know we'll get through this uh this is america america has always been crazy and uh we'll see what happens in 2024 when Trump is back again. <laughs> Let's hope not. Let's hope not. I, I mean, it's like reality TV for one thing for all of us, like out here where I live and everything, none of that touches us. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the Rocky mountains keeps a lot of that Washington <laughs> crossing over and getting to the Pacific ocean. And so we're out here in the sticks and uh, bumble mumbling around and doing our thing, you know, which is, wonderful uh, you know let them let them go crazy out there and spend all our money i mean you think about it, all that money they're spending comes from the people and then they just spend it for yeah. their own thing and That's then they true. give tax break, breaks to the rich so the rich get richer what did they say uh the the billionaires have more money than all the people in america combined right right um, I know. so it's always been like this it's because we're a european culture really still it's until we get uh really leveled out uh, to become really a truly multicultural nation and so the european ethos and uh you know make it while you can and screw the other person uh, doesn't hold sway you know mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. there's more and more co-ops there's more and more sharing of businesses and more and more uh uh, what was it called? What is it? The worker-owned businesses, you know, things right, like that. Right. Sure. Yeah, so, so you gotta you gotta stay positive yes. throughout the whole thing <clears throat> to realize that millions and millions of us, we're the majority, are working yes. hard to keep things right and to make things better. But these other guys are getting all the attention. Well, I think that's a good note to end on, Ken. This has been an absolute pleasure of mine to get to talk to you it's a thrill um speaking to a merry prankster is 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 something i'll never forget and i'm I'm really i'm really really grateful for you taking the time to talk with me today um glad to do it andy glad to do it yeah this this book is great because it's 
brought me out to talk to so many people and to uh, you know present myself and the stories to so many through Zoom and radio interviews and that. And then hopefully by summertime, things will loosen up enough with the COVID that I can go out and do uh, book readings all around. I was going to ask, are you planning to tour on it at all? I'll be glad to, you know, yeah. friends if, now, well, but I'm yeah. not doing anything while the COVID is around. I don't yeah, go anywhere. Stay safe, Ken. <laughs> Please stay safe. What about, um, what about turning it into a movie? That's funny because I, uh, uh, movie company in uh, Toronto wanted uh-huh. to take an option on the book. And then I read the contract and I said, hey, wait a minute. Because uh, I saw the book being made into a movie as dramatizations of the stories, you know, people playing sure. the part, acting them out and everything, certain stories and all that. Mm-hmm. No, they want to do a Netflix series about me. Oh, you know, wow. about my life and yeah. uh, you know, everything I've done in my life. They want as part of the contracts, all my uh, photos, my writings and my sure. recordings. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I turned them down. OK. Turned down the money and everything. And so this guy that I, I'm dealing with is a really great guy. I like him a lot. He mm-hmm. said he understood that. He says, let me uh, put together another plan. Okay. Uh, I said, yeah, I said, I'd be glad if you want to put something together to do a voice narration for my house. Because the other thing I didn't want, I didn't want those movie people coming into my place and right. hanging around and being around and everything. Ah, who needs all that? Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> and I could do that over the internet, the, the yeah. voice, yeah. you know, the, the narration. So we'll wait and see what he comes up with, whether I want to go for it or not. Sounds good. Well, again, thank you so much. Everybody should check out your book, Cronies of Burlesque, Adventures with Ken Kesey, Neil Cassidy, The Merry Pranksters, and The Grateful Dead. It's out now. It's it's fantastic. I love it. Um, yeah, uh, it's it's in every bookstore now. Oh, and if terrific. it's not in your local bookstore, tell them and they'll order it for you. You got it. We'll do that. Uh, okay. Right. Thanks a lot, Andy. You take care. Thank you. Okay. Bye now. Right, bye-bye. from home are we gonna send her that message or are we gonna leave her singing by her window crying for the kids that never came home I don't know if we will we can at least send her just whatever we have in our hearts God knows it's all there is. You must leave now, take what you need, you think we're late. Whatever you wish to keep, you better grab it fast. Your man stands here orphaned with his gun. Like a fire in the sun. Look out, all those saints are coming now. And it's all over now, baby. Blue. 
reached the end of this episode of the Jambase podcast. Thanks as always to all of you out there for listening. And thanks to SiriusXM Fish Radio for sponsoring the episode. Thanks also to Ken Babs for taking some time to talk with me. His terrific book, Cronies, A Burlesque, Adventures with Ken Kesey, Neil Cassidy, The Merry Pranksters, and The Grateful Dead, is out now. Thanks to Dennis for helping set up the interview and to Jake Alexander for production assistance. We'll be back next week, so in the meantime, be safe and go see live music.